Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories Podcast, Season 2, Episode 14. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season. And today we are joined by front office sports writer Amanda Kristovich, former Notre Dame quarterback Brady Quinn, Easy Post Hawaii Bowl Executive Director Daryl Garvin, and the CEO of University Fan Cards, Lynn Boggs. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, reimagining immersive experiences for sports fans and betters. Our first guest is a graduate of Georgetown University and earned her master's degree from the Columbia School of Journalism. She now covers the business side of college sports for front office sports. Please welcome to the show, Amanda Kristovich. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk to you today. So many changes on the business side of sports in general, but especially in college sports, so many moving parts. Uh, the fans are focused on the wins and losses, but so much has changed in the last 18 months around uh, NIL, uh, coaches, contracts, uh, big buyouts, so much more. How do you keep up with all of that? Well, I think I'm still trying to figure out the answer to that question of how I keep up with it all. Um, but like I you know, I, I like to say that on the business of college sports beat, uh, there's never a slow news day, um, <laughs> which, you know, is kind of a blessing in disguise. Um, you know, I jumped into this beat, you know, I think week three of um, my job at front office sports was when the Pac-12 and the Big Ten decided that they weren't going to play football because of COVID, if you remember that in 2020, that was week three. I and remember ever that since very then, well, <laughs> unfortunately. I can imagine, I can imagine. And ever since then, it's just been a whirlwind between you know that whole COVID season and then um, the Alston case, uh, which was the, the Supreme Court case about um, how much the NCA can limit the educational benefits that schools give to players. Um, that was decided in June of 2021. Then the NIL era started pretty much a week and a half later. Um, and I, along with athletes, and I think it's safe to say um, all athletic department officials who might normally take a break uh, in the summer, maybe go to the beach, did not do that uh, because of the beginning of the NIL era. Um, and then from there, uh, you know, it's been, like you mentioned, um, you know, ballooning coaches' contracts, um, talk about congressional intervention. The NCAA has a new constitution, um, you know, and, uh, and there are several court cases in the works about, um, you know, the question of whether or not athletes should be considered employees under the law, how much, if they should be paid, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I just wake up every morning and, uh, and just try to cover as much as I can. That's, that's my strategy. <laughs> Well, we're, we're going to talk about uh, some of those things a little bit more in a minute, but uh, this show, we have a, a bowl executive director each on each episode, and they love talking about the important relationship between the community and their bowl game. How important is the community aspect of what bowl games do and bring to their home market? Oh, I think it's everything. Um, so I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm an East coaster now, but um, you know, I mean, whether you were a diehard uh, college football fan or you knew literally nothing about um, football at any level, uh, the Rose Bowl was, you know, a mainstay of just the, the local sports culture um, is, I guess, the best way to describe it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that um, 
college football is a very local sport. Um, it's always been a local sport, whether it be regular season or whether it be bowl games. Um, and I, you know, I've spoken to, um, you know, on, on other podcasts, have other conversations about sort of the nationalization of college football, particularly as media contracts precipitate um, schools, you know, like USC and UCLA moving to the Big Ten, for example, right? And creating a cross-country league where, you know, previously it may have been more regional. Um, you know, but I don't think I have to tell you that the regionality of college football and college football fans, whether it be in a big market or a small market, um, is really like sort of like the underpinning of, of what makes the, the sport so unique. I, I completely agree with you, Amanda. It's, um, you know, one of my fears as, you know, how you put it, college football becoming more national is you lose those local rivalries and the bragging rights. I mean, so much of what drives the value in college football is tradition. And we're kind of severing a lot of, you know, traditions and rivalries and whatnot. How do you, how do you feel that's going to affect the sport from a business standpoint? Uh, from a business standpoint, uh, the money is going to continue to flow in, um, you know, and, and, and the business standpoint, it's funny because it's, a lot of things in, um, in college sports right now, I feel like are sort of like a chicken and egg question. And I feel personally that the, um, the professionalization of, of college football, the increased media contracts, the, the revenue is actually what is driving the nationalization of the sport. Because not only has it become clear that, um, that the way that things currently are is extremely lucrative, but they can become even more lucrative, particularly, um, and again, I just think USC and UCLA, maybe because I'm a Los Angeles native, moving to the Big Ten is such an example of this. I mean, I like the day that happened, I remember my parents, my mother is a diehard UCLA fan, my uncle is a diehard USC fan. So that's a super fun dynamic for us, right? Just being like, what? What is happening? You know what I mean? I mean, this is just... This is, you know, they have decades of history of, of that rivalry and the rivalry isn't going away, right? Cause like both of the schools are moving to a different conference but I definitely think it means something different when they're moving to a conference where they're gonna be playing in New Jersey, in Ohio, in Michigan. Um, and so I, I think that that regionality probably will continue, right? But um, you know, I, I think that the the sort of ballooning revenue has really started to push more of an almost like NFL esque um, dynamic to Power Five football. Yeah. Well, one thing we know for sure, it's gonna it's gonna look very different. It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out and whether it works or it doesn't work. I think uh, with any any gain comes some loss in some other other area. So hopefully, it balances out for everybody. Uh, we talked about NIL a little bit earlier. Uh, when you look at NIL, can you see a world where bowl games can use it to their advantage from year to year? Absolutely. Um, you know, so the thing about NIL is that um, any sort of third party entity um, can pay athletes um, to advertise for them. Right. So actually, you saw this last year. There were a couple of um, in college basketball. So they have those sort of non-conference they call them MTEs, multi-team events. And those, um, those events are often run 
obviously they're NCA sanctioned NCA schools, right? But they are run by like LLCs or entities that are not the NCAA. And they realize actually we are allowed to pay college athletes to promote this tournament that they themselves will be playing in. And I don't see that um, bowl game, the, the sort of legal dynamic in bowl games, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't see how that would be much different. Um, I, I don't see why we couldn't um, you know, have the, the business entities of bowls, right, that are separate from the NCAA say, we're gonna, we're gonna pay athletes. Uh, to promote us. We're going to pay athletes to go, go on social media and talk about, um, you know, the bowls that they're going to play in. Um, so I, I think that that's, a, that that's a huge potential for the future. Yeah, I think you're probably right. There's, there's 42 bowl games there. You, you mentioned bowl games are different, but then again, but then all 42 are also different from each other. But I do think uh, at some level, they're all going to have to explore that and and that'll be another interesting thing to, to follow. I look forward to picking your brain on that as it evolves. Uh, one thing we know for sure, college football is very popular. People watch it uh, regular this year's regular season. The TV viewership is off the charts. Bowl season viewership last year was uh, was up. We um, across the board, the 42 bowl games. Uh, it's amazing how many people watch games. You take the same regular season matchup and you call it a bowl game and play in December, it gets two to three times the number of viewers. It's just some, something special about that bowl moniker. Um, now we're seeing huge uh, revenue TV deals, as you mentioned earlier, for regular mm -hmm. season games. How do you see bowl season fitting into the future of these deals? What kind of value do you think they could command in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that the value of all, um, you know, FBS football is going up. I would, I would argue, um, and I've done some reporting on this, that college football, that sort of like the rising tide lifts all boats. I know this isn't exactly what you asked, but I did reporting over the summer about um, like division two football teams, like commanding, you know, um, like more than six figures, seven figures in media rights, right? So if, if they're, if they're, um, if the value of division two football is increasing, I think it's safe to say that the value of postseason FBS football is also going up. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think I'm sure, you know, uh, this has been a huge topic of conversation. I think the question that we should be asking that I guess is going to like answer your question is how in particular many of these bowl games might play into the expanded college football playoff. Um, because I know that currently, right, there's a rotation of the near six with the four, you know, with, with the 14 CFP. So the media rights for the CFP, as we've reported, is going to skyrocket. So then the question becomes, how do the bowl games fit into that? Um, and then for the rest of the bowl games, the question becomes, you know, what is the value? Um, because to me, the value of the bowl games maybe in person as part of the tradition. But I, but I, but I also think that the value of the, the teams themselves as, as that fandom increases will also relate to uh, future media rights contracts. Last question for you, Amanda, uh, with everything changing so rapidly in college athletics, what are some of the questions you would have for a bowl game executive director and what, what's some of the advice you would give them and how they can evolve to keep up and maybe even enhance what, what has, what is really a hundred year old tradition. As far as advice, you know, 
I'm not sure how much advice I could give because I always joke that I actually have the easy job um, in college sports. I just write about uh, everything that's happening. Uh, the rest of you are charged with actually figuring it out. I write about the problems. I don't have to come up with the solutions. Well, but- it's, been, it's great of you to recognize that, Amanda. There are some veteran sports writers that think quite the opposite, just, just so you know. So don't ever I'm lose not- that perspective, please. <laughs> I'm not saying my job is easy. But I am saying uh, that, you know, um, like the other day I asked the new Big 12 commissioner, Brett Yormark, he said, what keeps you up at night uh, with regards to your conference, right? He's like, everything keeps me up at night. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I, uh, I'm, you know, you've got a nice salary, but I can't say I envy that. Um, anyway, so as far as just the questions that I have, I mean, you know, I think the biggest question that I just personally have is what are the bowl games going to do to give athletes more than they've previously given them? Because there's, you know, the court of public opinion has really shifted in the last few years about should athletes be paid or not paid? What should they be given and not given? Right. And then there's also been this trend of um, athletes, who, you know, might be NFL draft prospects sitting there and going, I really want the experience of the bowl game, but what if I get hurt? Do I play? Do I not play? Right? So to me, the question is, what are the bowl games with their increasing revenue, their increasing, you know, media rights, ticket revenue, everything? What can they give to the athletes? What can, you know, what extra benefits can they provide? And I know that there are conversations about this happening at the CFP level. Um, and there are conversations happening at the conference level. So that would be my main question. Yep. And that's a good one. I think that's a question we're all asking ourselves at, at all of those levels, bowl, bowl games included. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. I, I think you and I would probably agree that, that something's going to happen along those lines. It's just a matter of, of, of what and how much. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So, so, well, Amanda, we've taken enough of your time. Uh, thanks for, so much for joining us. Good luck to you. Uh, I'm envious that you're in New York City. Uh, it's, it's my favorite city. So enjoy it and, uh, look forward to catching up with you again. Thank you. And thanks again for having me. It was great chatting. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Stay tuned. Vapor apparel has all your game day essentials from eco-friendly lightweight sun protection shirts and hoodies to cozy joggers and Sherpa fleece pullovers. Vapor has the layers you need to get outside and stay out longer. Plus, as Bowl Season's official apparel sponsor, they're creating limited edition shirts for bowl-bound teams made with 100% reprieve fiber from recycled water bottles. Want to celebrate your team's bowl bid with official bowl-bound gear? Get yours and explore more at bowlseason.com. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest played quarterback at the University of Notre Dame from 2003 to 2006. His 29 career wins as a starting quarterback ranked second in school history. In 2006, he won both the Johnny Unitas Award given to the nation's top quarterback, as well as the Maxwell Award given to the best college football player. He was a first-round draft pick of the Cleveland Browns and played seven years in the NFL for seven different teams. Please welcome to the show former Notre Dame quarterback and current Fox college football analyst, Brady Quinn. Boy, that was a mouthful. Brady, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Always good to be talking some uh, bowl season and bowl games. Awesome. Well, let's start out with just, you know, being a division one athlete, you know, at Notre Dame, I mean, being a college quarterback at a 
top D1 school is a big deal in and of itself. But being the quarterback at Notre Dame is a little different. What was that experience like, and how did you deal with the added pressure of playing that position at that school? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because, you know, I grew up obviously in Columbus, Ohio, right outside of uh, Ohio State. And I grew up going to games, tailgating, throwing the football around the parking lot, around the shoe. And uh, I grew up an Ohio State fan, but also had a strong uh, liking of Notre Dame. And, you know, kind of I'd never been there before when I was a young kid, not until I started being recruited uh, by the university. So it was such a contrast of what I grew up around and what I was accustomed to uh, in comparison to like what I was looking for when I ultimately ended up going and decided to go to Notre Dame. Um, but I think the thing that stood out to me the most was just how national Notre Dame is and not really fully understanding it or realizing it until I got there and probably not even fully understanding it until I left. And then the reach that the university has, just everything else that comes along with being the quarterback at Notre Dame. But like I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to be able to um, have basically my choice of you know three great places between Michigan, Notre Dame, and Ohio State. That was my final three, and a lot of it was born out of, to me at least, um, just how good the coaching I received at the youth level into junior high and high school was in the state of Ohio. Um, you know, my uncle would play college ball at Brown. Uh, he had a huge impact on that. Obviously, my dad had a huge impact on that, just teaching me how to throw and teach me how to be a quarterback. Uh, but those two influences played such a big factor on all that and really helping to prepare me um, for what the next step was. I mean, I would challenge, you know, parents out there, um, you know, younger QBs out there to keep challenging yourself to learn the game. I mean, I remember walking into high school uh, practices, understanding fronts, understanding coverages, all the sorts of things that a lot of guys were just learning at that point in time. And so it, I think it helped prepare me for, you know, being able to play as a true freshman and playing in every game uh, from our first game in 2003 versus Washington State at home uh, to my final game, you know, playing in, in the Sugar Bowl versus LSU my senior year. Um, but all the, all that, I think hard work, all that coaching, um, everything else that I kind of did extra, I think helped put me in the position to be a D1 quarterback and be able to start and play right away. Now you're an analyst for Fox. You get to see some great games every week. In fact, this past weekend, you were in your hometown uh, to see the Michigan-Ohio State game. 17 million television viewers. I, I forget how many years I read something, but it's been a long time since that many people have watched a regular season college football game. Are you enjoying this job? And how how differently do you look at the game uh, in this role than you did as a player? Yeah, 11 years. That's how long it's been since uh, any game on TV has rivaled across any network, uh, the the audience that was there for the game. Wow. In Michigan. So pretty incredible. But uh, of course I enjoy it. I mean, it's a ton of fun. Just to have the ability to stay around the game of football in any capacity, whether that's doing college games uh, and a pregame show for college or calling games for the NFL, which I'll do from time to time. Uh, it's it's obviously a ton of fun to be a part of it. I think the biggest thing for me that I had to learn and I had to adapt to in this career because I didn't go to school to be a broadcaster. I I was a poli sci and a um, finance major. You know, I'm I'm getting my MBA right now, and everything's more kind of geared towards like business oriented uh, thinking or real estate. Um, and so none of this was really by design. You know, it came via after back surgery in my you know seventh season uh, with the St. Louis Rams at the time. And Jeff Fisher kind of mentioning like, hey, maybe you should look at getting into TV uh, when you get to the offseason, once you recover. And I took that advice and had some opportunities that came from it. 
and even still, you know, went to training camp with the Dolphins in year eight, um, but quickly realized like that path of trying to get back out on the field to be a starter was pretty slim. And it was going to take a lot of patience and probably a tougher road. And I had out in front of me this great opportunity with Fox Sports. And so I, I took that opportunity and kind of ran with it. And even though it was heartbreaking at times, honestly, to be calling NFL games that very season, um, it, it still, you know, provided kind of a window into being able to be around the game of football, to be able to still teach people about the game of football, the lessons that you learn, the X's and O's, and have fun while doing it. So I'm having a blast. Um, like I said, it was never my, you know, plan to to be on TV talking football. Um, but I am, I do feel blessed that it's all worked out that way. Mentioned earlier about you know playing youth football and and how that prepared you for high school and that prepared you for college. Who who is the biggest influence on your life as a young football player and 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 who you know maybe there's I'm sure there's more than one who who put you in a position to succeed. Yeah, I think three people like early on in my life uh, had a huge impact. And my first was my father, Ty Quinn. Um, he just taught me how to throw. Taught me how to throw anything. You know, at first it was a baseball. It was a football, but it was like skipping rocks. It was whatever it was. You know, he really is the one who who brought me along, kind of taught me that, and would sit there and watch games, and um, you know, take me to games. So uh, he was the first person really introduced me to it. And then, as you know, the gap of of my age and, and my uncle's age, my mom obviously had her, her youngest brother. He played at Brown, so I remember very, very at a young age going to some of his games. Uh, out there in Providence. And he then really took me under his wing once he transitioned from playing into the, you know, world of finance. And, um, you know, he would help, you know, take me, whether it was to get additional coaching or help coach our teams. And, you know, he was one of the those bigger, you know, proponents of, of even taking me with him to scout games. Like I remember being in junior high, instead of hanging out on weekends, I'd go with him for one of his buddies that was coaching and go scout teams and what personnel they're using. What are they doing these situations and you know circumstances of the game? And so I was doing that at kind of a young age uh, with him. And so he was kind of that next you know big figure in my mind. And then my high school coach, uh, Mark Crabtree, came to Dublin Kaufman um, back in two thousand and one. Um, he was my head coach for my junior and senior, senior season. And in our first year, we went to the state semis, which was as far as Dublin Kaufman's ever made it to this point in its history. Uh, and just had a lot of success with him. And I think, you know, he was able to provide just a lot of great life advice. Uh, he's always been someone that I can lean on. He's always been someone that I've, I've reached out to at various points in my life. Um, and so he, he obviously had a huge impact, uh, just not only coming to Dublin Kaufman, uh, but I, I think how he continued to shape that program there, which is no longer there now, uh, which is unfortunate. But uh, after a long, successful tenure, you know, I think he left his his stamp on that program and obviously on my life as well. Awesome. Awesome. Now let's talk bowl games. This podcast is called bowl season stories. You went to three of them at Notre Dame, the 2004 insight bowl, 2006 Fiesta bowl and the 2007 sugar bowl, all, all rewards for a successful season. Yeah. What do you remember about those trips and what did they mean to you and your teammates? Well, you know, the, the first one to be quite honest with you, you know, we had, uh, we were a six and five, uh, team and we're going to the, we got selected to go to the insight bowl, but, uh, our head coach had just gotten fired, Ty Willingham. And we were at a crossroads. Uh, our team was largely, at least offensively speaking, a lot of young players, my class in particular had a great class. Uh, and we were sophomores that year. So, uh, we look, we, we won some games we weren't supposed to, you know, beat a top 10 Tennessee team, beat a top 10 Michigan team that year, but then lost some games 
in the end that we had leads to uh, BC that year, Pitt that year. You know, if we go eight and three, you're probably have you know telling a different story. You know, Ty Williams probably not fired, and unfortunately, we lost uh, down the stretch in those tight games. So it, it was a tough year. Um, the reward in my mind, I think to a lot of us that end up having to decide, like as a team, we voted on whether or not we we're going to go play in that bowl game. And, you know, I lobbied our older, older guys in our program hard, our seniors and our fifth year seniors, that it was important for us, not necessarily for that moment, but for the future of the program, uh, for us to be able to get those additional weeks of practice, for us to be able to get that additional time, you know, together to play together, uh, even though the season didn't turn out how we wanted to. And so we ended up voting and uh, we went out to the inside bowl and, um, you know, ended up not getting a victory out of it. But I do feel like that whole experience was kind of galvanizing for us as a group for the success that we would have the following season, winning nine games, going to a BCS game in the Fiesta Bowl. Um, but, you know, it, it's tough. I mean, you, we had coaches who are out there, you know, we're out there trying to practice. And meanwhile, they're, you know, might be a little more preoccupied trying to go find the next job. Um, and so that, that made it a little bit more difficult. I think we had captains bed check. Uh, through some of those nights. And I'm not, I'm not so sure that that actually worked out the way we had hoped, but um, overall it was just, it was, it was a good experience for us. I think building for the future, being able to have that additional time together, but that additional time to practice and develop, um, you know, the Fiesta Bowl, you know, so many things stick out about that particular season, you know, for me, you know, having to play a, a team that I grew up rooting for, you know, right in my backyard there in Columbus, Ohio, uh, it, meant, it meant a lot for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, the game obviously didn't turn out the way we had hoped to, but I think for our program to be where we were the year prior, maybe a couple of years prior to get to that point, to be in a BCS game kind of spoke about the progress that we had made under Charlie Weiss and his first year as head coach. Uh, and so that was, you know, it was fun to be back out there in Phoenix. We were familiar with the area, familiar with the environment. Um, you know, obviously we're able to enjoy into it, not just, you know, playing a big time game like that, uh, but actually able to enjoy ourselves as well, kind of knowing where to go and where we were going to be. Uh, and then in the next year, obviously, we got to a Sugar Bowl, uh, which, you know, that was after Hurricane Katrina. And I think the thing that stood out the most about that game, because, you know, it was close until half and then we got beat pretty bad in the second half. I had a, suffered a knee injury in that game. And, um, you know, given that I was looking at going on the draft after that, it was, you know, obviously kind of scary, not knowing like, hey, what's torn. But we knew, you know, something was wrong and I ended up tearing my PCL. Um, but that week, the thing that stood out the most was going and doing some community service acts in the community and then seeing how, you know, impacted uh, New Orleans was obviously from Hurricane Katrina and trying to provide whatever help we could for the period of time we could. Uh, but it, it really left me with kind of the sentiment that, you know, that win for LSU, uh, granted, it was like a home game for them, given the crowd and everyone else there. But it was it was almost it was like a little piece of like bringing up the spirit uh, of of the folks there in Louisiana, uh, given everything that they had been through. Uh, and so that was one particular memory kind of helping with some of the local schools and so forth, trying to get things back on track uh, that really stood out. We talk a lot about how meaningful these bowl game experiences are, uh, especially for the seniors, you know, even at a school like Notre, Notre Dame, you were fortunate enough to go on to the NFL. Some of your teammates did, but still most of them did not. So for many of them, it was their last game. And here you are you're together as a team, your closest friends in this unique location, uh, how how special and how meaningful is that component of bowl games to you? Oh, I mean, it's it's what makes it fun, you know. I mean, and and obviously you go out and you have a great time at a lot of these various venues and uh, the bowl games, the way they take care of you uh, with the gifts and different things that they provide. It just it really does feel like a reward uh, when it's all said and done, having the opportunity to be on a national stage like that 
to represent your school, to represent your, you know, yourself, your family. Um, it, it's huge. And then honestly, it's a celebration for everyone involved, not just your teammates, you know, even your family getting the chance to come out and kind of celebrate, you know, the season. And I always think back of all the sacrifices that my parents made and, you know, they made it into a vacation when they would be able to come out to, uh, to the various bowl games. So there's obviously a ton of work that goes into it. I'm a part of the orange bowl committee now. Uh, so I, I see behind the scenes, the amount of work that goes into it and, and how special they try to make uh, each one of these opportunities. Uh, but, but to me, it's, it's just one of those memorable experiences that, you know, you walk away and you, you know, talk to your, your teammates you know, after 10, you know, uh, 15 years from being out from all that. And you still remember those fond memories of it. So people turn on the TV in December, they watch three hours of football. Um, what they may or may not know is you've been in that town for four, five, six days, right? It's a big part of the trip. You've been to three bowl games, a lot of activities leading up to the game itself. Any stories that st- stands out, stand out in your mind as memories you'll never forget? <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't know that I'm a liberty to tell some of the, some of the stories. Uh, I mean, tell, tell us the clean ones. The clean ones, uh, that'd be tough. Um, I, I, I guess I'll try to make some of the stories uh, clean if I can. Uh, I mean, it probably goes back to the first, uh, you know, first bowl game experience. It was kind of like when your parents first dropped you off at college, and um, you know, you felt like there was kind of no rules, or you know, you're under your parents' guidance, and so kind of out, you know, exploring town and everything else, and just having a good time with with, with your buddies. Um, some of our some of our players had too much too much of a good time, and uh, I just remember the first couple periods of practice, they were. They were just throwing up. <laughs> they weren't even able to really end up going and doing it. So, um, yeah, I think that first bowl game experience was pretty eye-opening as far as, um, you know, just the fact that you're kind of able to go out and really enjoy yourselves and, um, you know, have a good time, especially with, with your with your buddies, with your friends, um, and especially considering the circumstances around the coaching staff. Uh, that was There was a couple of nights that I'll, I'll probably never forget, just kind of as a team hanging out, having fun together. So, uh, I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that in regards to, uh, in regards to that. But, you know, my, the, the one that stands out, obviously that most people, uh, will probably recall is the Fiesta Bowl. My sister at the time, uh, had been dating AJ Hawk and, uh, she had, you know, she had talked to me before the game. She said, Hey, I had this idea of doing a half Jersey. And I said, okay. I was like, I was like, I was like, really? I was like, isn't blood thicker than water? Cause uh, you know, I knew her and AJ were pretty serious and they ended up getting engaged soon after that. But uh, I kind of gave her a hard time about it. But she had the old split jersey. Uh, one side was Notre Dame, one side was Ohio State. And uh, she ended up wearing it to that Fiesta Bowl, which, you know, I think she ended up getting more airtime than AJ and I probably combined in that game. We actually played in it. But uh, the infamous uh, half jersey became something that ended up being framed. And I think either my mom has it or she has it somewhere. But that's something that like went along with that, that matchup that like, probably if you ask someone like, Hey, do you remember, you know, the Ohio state Notre Dame festival with the girl with the half Jersey, like, or Brady Quinn's sister, like that's one of the biggest takeaways from that game. Uh, I'm not even sure so many, so many people to watch to even know who won that game when it was all said and done. I had forgotten that, but you jogged my memory on that one. Um, Brady, everybody loves the CFP, including me, but we all know, most college football programs can't aspire to make the playoff every year. There's 130 institutions that play football at that level, even on the new format, you know, 12 slots teams need postseason opportunities to play. You can't have a system where 12 go to the playoff and, you know, 118 go home. Right. To that point, for the people who question 
the meaning of bowl games and, 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 and what's the role in all of them. Can you imagine a world without bowl games? I hope not. You know, I, I'm always a huge advocate for football. I mean, I, I'll first and foremost say this, that it is a reward. You know, it is a reward to these young men uh, who work extremely hard just for the opportunity to go out there and play and play the game they love. And I think we sometimes forget that, that 98% of these young men are not moving on to the NFL and, and these bowl games will be some of the last football they ever play. So uh, having the chance to play in those games, having the chance to be rewarded for that, it, it's it's huge and it's meaningful. And I think we only tend to focus on, you know, the two percent, one percent of guys that either opt out or you know, or they they might get hurt in the game because they've got aspirations or a future playing in the NFL. That's not the majority of the situations and circumstances that a lot of these guys are faced with. So uh, I always looked at it as a reward. I, I hate to see guys not participate or not. Um, you know, be a part of something that I think can be so special for them moving forward. Um, you know, like anything else, football, there's always risks involved. And, and so you can go and have that conversation. But uh, I just I think there's something to be said uh, for the reward that that comes into play for a lot of those young men. The other thing I'll kind of touch on is just it's a developmental sport. You know, there's a lot of players who the additional practices you get leading up to that game, the additional game rep too, becomes meaningful, not only just for the momentum going into the spring, but you know, even spring into that following season and what that could mean for them. So uh, I even think it's just, it's meaningful for the development of a lot of those players too, uh, getting more and more reps, more and more live, you know, more live reps too, uh, playing in a game. And so uh, that's another reason why I kind of look at that and say, I think it, it benefits a lot of teams to have the opportunity to play in those bowl games and, and build off of that. And maybe it's a springboard for them the following season into that spring or even, even into the next year. Last question for you, Brady. Uh, you're the son of a Vietnam War veteran. Tell us about the Third and Goal Foundation. It's a charity you founded in 2010 that helps veterans with housing needs. Want to give you an opportunity to talk about what that organization does? Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity too, Nick. I really appreciate that. The first thing I just say is, some people are always like, you know, why do you name the foundation the name that you name it? Well. I had to play for a lot of uh, former New England Patriots coaches, uh, you know, Charlie Weiss and got drafted with Romeo Crennel and got traded to the Denver Broncos with Josh McDaniels and played for Eric Mancini. And so all, all these bright uh, minds that came from the New England Patriots organization. And one of the things that they really prioritized was, was third and goal. Uh, each side of the ball, offense and defensively, had a strategic package um, that they felt like was pivotal for them executing and winning football games. And it was really that four-point swing from you know executing on offense to score a touchdown or defensively executing and being able to get off the field and force a field goal. And that four-point difference adds up over the course of the four quarters. So I really felt like it was um, uh, an appropriate name for you know the work that I was looking at doing with veterans. And um, you know you mentioned my dad, who was uh, a Marine in Vietnam. My grandfather, my dad's side, was in the Army in World War II, and then his uh, his father is in World War One. Um, so I come from a, a lineage of uh, men who have served this country, and it, it only seemed fitting to me one day after talking to some wounded veterans while I was with the Denver Broncos, uh, just asking them generally how I could help. And at that point in time, they talked about some of their difficulties adapting back into civilian life. And so I called my dad and I said, hey, you know, I don't know what we can do, but I want to I want to try to find a way of helping. And he said, well, you know, I'm a home builder and we can remodel a home to make it handicap accessible for those who are coming back who are wounded and, and need that. And, you know, we can self-fund this and, and start with, with just one veteran move forward. And so that was back starting in 2010. And, you know, now we help over 2000 veterans every year. 
Uh, we have multiple platforms. We have Operation Home, which is where we you know make a homes handicap accessible for wounded veterans. We have Operation Education, where we put on educational platforms for um, those serving in the military who are looking to come back and start, continue, or finish their education. Uh, so we've got programs at the University of Notre Dame, the Ohio State University, and the University of Cincinnati. Um, and then we've got Operation Joy, and Operation Joy primarily helps provide um, unique experiences uh, to military uh, families in need or just, uh, you know, veterans who are in need. And that can encompass, you know, holidays and uh, different sporting events, concerts, things of that nature. So uh, it's it's been 12 years running now. Um, I'm really proud of the work we've been able to accomplish in helping veterans. Uh, and so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. Congratulations on the work you do there, Brady. Uh, and thanks for joining us. I uh, really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. You got a big game to call this weekend. And uh, I don't know if you're going to be going to any bowl games. I know you're going to be uh, watching them for sure, like everybody else. So I uh, really appreciate your time. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I'll run into you on the road. Sounds good, Nick. Thanks for having me on. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Stay with us. The forecast for this tax season, it's going to rain refunds. Lots of refunds. File for less and get more with Tax Act the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest is brought to you by Tappet. Understand how going cashless builds loyalty, engages fans, and boosts your bottom line. We now welcome to the show the executive director of the Easy Post Hawaii Bowl, Daryl Garvin. Daryl, thanks for joining us. Aloha. Uh, happy to join. Happy to talk about the Easy Post Hawaii Bowl. Well, first off, Tell us the story of how a, a Washington, D.C. native becomes a sergeant in the U.S. Army before settling in Honolulu, Hawaii, as a concert events presenter and eventually becomes the executive director of the Hawaii Bowl. So, Nick, that, that's a 40 year story. So, you know, I'm not sure how detailed you want me to be, but I, I do remember and this ties a little bit back to college football. I was watching the 1977 Army Navy game. And if I, my memory serves me correct. They did a, a piece during the game on Army's tight end, Clenny Bruntage, going through jump school training over the summer. And just uh, just watching him like drop from the 250-foot tower with the parachute open and, and all that just, you know, that made me say, hey, that's what I want to do. And so I, I, I joined the Army and spent two years in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska before going to jump school. And then my last two years with the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, after the Army, I was going to school. I, I got a job working for the late Sam Lahamadou at the Warner Theater in Washington, DC, working on all types of entertainment uh, in the DC Baltimore area, but also up and down the East Coast and throughout the Southeast. And while working at the Warner, I met my future wife, Mei Jean. She's part Hawaiian. Uh, she grew up military, lungs, story short, so we don't go through all 40 years, when she wanted to move home, so to speak. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii, but it was not a hard sell for me. So then uh, presenting and producing events, it's not that much different than presenting sporting events. You know, it's selling tickets, it's selling sponsorships, it's meeting the needs of the talent when you're in the entertainment industry, of the teams and the coaches when you're presenting bowl games. Um, also, the ticket buyers, you know, it's 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 the same business, maybe a slightly different product. Um, and I'd gotten to know David Matlin through working on events. And so when he became the executive director of the ball and, and had an opening, I applied lucky enough to get the job. And then when he moved on to be the director of athletics at the University of Hawaii, I ended up in the executive director seat. So that's 40 years in a, in a nutshell. Well, that uh, 
pretty, pretty impressive. Pretty exciting. Can't blame you for being in Hawaii. I have been there once, um, but that's not enough for sure. Now you've, you've done a little bit of everything. You mentioned, you know, the concert events, you've, you've run a, an international soccer tournament in Hawaii. Did you always have a passion for putting on events or is that, is that something you kind of found as your career went along? Well, um, you know, first of all, I, I was lucky enough to be part of a larger group that staged that international soccer tournament here in Honolulu. But but yes, for my first taste of the event business, which was selling T-shirts at rock concerts, it, it gets under your skin. You know, we're very blessed to do what we do and get paid for it. Um, you know, events are events are just fun. You know, it's a lot more work than people outside the event business realize as far as hours and, and time. But when you see the joy in, in the crowd or the joy in the participants, uh, you just can't help but feel good about what you do. Unfortunately, the Hawaii Bowl uh, was canceled the last two years due to COVID. How has it changed the way you approach the game this year? And is there a, a bigger sense of excitement and, and celebration about its return as a result? Well, that that's a really good question. And it's kind of a hard question because I think that excitement and sense of celebration has to be re-earned. Uh, you know, we've been dark for two years. We have to come back and deliver those those fan experiences and those participant experiences that are under our control and, and start getting back to where we were pre-COVID. Now, you, you've been with the Hawaii Bowl for more than 13 years now. Prior to the COVID issues, how have you seen the event grow and improve each year? You know, we've really become a, a part of so many families across the country of their holiday traditions. Um, the birth of the Hawaiian Airlines Diamond Head Classic Basketball Tournament is a direct result of, of the success of the Hawaii Bowl. Same with the soccer event previously mentioned. Uh, also, when we hosted the Armed Forces Classic here in Honolulu, uh, they're all attributable to the success of the Hawaii Bowl and, and the longevity of the game. We're now entering our 21st year. Uh, and to give you an example of how things have grown in 2018, we, we did our first extra yard for teachers program. We were able to grant $10,000 locally. That grew to $30,000 in 2019. Last year, before, or in 20, we took a COVID break, but in, in 21, before the game was canceled the night before, we were tracking $24,000, which we were able to distribute after the event. And this year, we've grown that amount to $100,000 that we're going to give back into the community uh, to support teachers, support classroom training, support teacher retention, which is very important here in Hawaii. So, you know, the impact is always growing. We're always looking to increase the impact and and just always looking for ways to get, get better. Well, to, to that point, you know, you're, you're also involved in the Hawaii Bowl Foundation, which helps Hawaii-based nonprofits provide services to area youth. Tell us more about the ways that that foundation helps. So the, the Hawaii Bulls Foundation mission is, is to assist Hawaii-based 501c3 organizations. Uh, the foundation developed a, a giving strategy that revolves around uh, trying to impact as many organizations as possible. Therefore, maybe it's smaller grants to organizations where that smaller grant makes a much larger impact and difference in their budget or their program. Uh, since inception, the foundation's granted over $1.6 million back into the local community. Uh, I would venture to guess two or three times that much and donated tickets to these organizations so they can attend the games. Uh, again, a preference is given to nonprofits that provide services for Hawaii's youth. So it's kind of just a, a real feel-good part of the job to help these organizations, especially these smaller grassroots organizations. Last question for you, Daryl. What did four years in the Army do to prepare you for life in the private sector? And how do the lessons that you learned continue to help you today in your leadership role? 
So when when I was in the army, luckily, I'm saying luckily a lot, I guess I've had a lucky life, but it was the peacetime army. So um, I'm very, very fortunate there. But I was in the infantry and, and they, they have a saying, pick up your weapon and follow me. And I think that says it all about leadership. You know, you lead by example. You don't ask your staff to do anything you haven't done or wouldn't do. Uh, and you try to provide the staff with the tools to succeed on their own so that, that they have that ability to take over when needed. Um, kind of, you know, kind of follow that principle, you know, lead by example, follow me and, and just go from there. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Daryl, we've taken up enough for your time. You're, you're very busy. Um, it's, it's your time of year. It's our time of year, really. Um, big game coming up, middle Tennessee versus San Diego state. Uh, thanks for your time. Good luck with your game this year. Aloha, Nick. We now welcome to the show the CEO of University Fan Cards, Lynn Boggs. Lynn, thanks for joining us. Nick, thanks for having us. We appreciate bowl season having us on. Each week, we talk to former players and coaches who've played or participated in bowl games. They share their memories of those great experiences and talk about how meaningful they were to them. And one of the more consistent memories that we hear about is the gifts they've received. It's a tradition almost as old as the games themselves. They, uh, 20, 30 years later, they still have these gifts in their cherished possessions. Uh, what is it that makes receiving bowl gifts such a memorable part of their experience? You know, Nick, when I look at it, I, I kind of look at it from what my experience with bowls and then apply that to players and think, you know, back in time, long time ago, uh, I can remember days of watching bowl games on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day with the family and multiple TVs and having family over and friends over and eating over. And I got to believe the players feel the same way. They grew up watching bowl games and and be able to walk away with something that's uh, a memorabilia, a watch that has that logo, a football that brings that back to them. They can stick on their desk. Uh, I think it really brings a lot to the player and the opportunity and, and just brings back history and that whole memory of what goes on at a bowl game. Now, University Fan Cards has helped that experience evolve in recent years. Tell me about that and what Fan Cards is doing in general to help the bowls and the student athletes make this experience better. Yeah, I think one of the things we looked at is what, you know, we, we don't want to break up with the history. We want that memorabilia and we want that, uh, that experience to go home with them. Uh, but when you survey the players and what the players are looking for, it's obviously the number one issue they like to have is cash. And, and, and you don't want to give cash. There's no memory to that cash that goes home. So we created a logo-based, uh, custom-branded MasterCard with, with bow logos that can be used anywhere in the country. But more importantly, that can be used as an experience while they're there locally, the local culture, spending at restaurants. Um, and then at the end, be able to carry that card back home with them uh, and still have it and use it and share it with friends and family. Well, I think there's definitely uh, you're you're helping create a great balance, Lynn, of of players having these mementos, but also having some more practical, uh, you know, gift that they can use for pretty much whatever they want. You know, uh, now I know Fan Cards is active throughout the intercollegiate sports landscape, not just bowl games. What else are you guys into? Well, it's interesting, Nick. I was going to answer, I'm going to answer your go back to your first question for a second first because I you brought up a good point. They can use this for anything they want to. And when we do look at the data these these players are using the cards for, my first thought where I go to all the time is, you know, they want to spend on the next technology, the next gear and whatever. And when you said that about whatever they want, what we find is they spend it on restaurants, food, local beverages, uh, not on the gear. Only less than 5% of the money on these cards are being spent on uh, technology. So 
back to that question, but what we do, we have currently 32 plus schools under uh, um, uh, college branded MasterCard gift cards. We're currently in over 20,000 retailers around the country with our gift cards, uh, Dollar General, Kroger, Walmart, Albertsons, uh, Target, many, many more. Um, so we're all over the country. It's a perfect gift for anyone, if you think about it. If, they, if they've got a college they love and uh, you're trying to reach somebody a gift, even the guy that doesn't like that college, give them a gift of that of that uh, card. Uh, it's really a great opportunity to everybody share in the fandom. Yeah, you're, you're um, certainly providing a great uh, great service to, to these bowls, to these student athletes, something, like I said, something practical uh, in addition to the mementos they receive. Uh, great idea. Uh, thanks for sharing all that with us, Lynn. Uh, appreciate your time and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nick. We appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening to this week's Bowl Season Stories podcast. Please join us next week when we will welcome another lineup of great guests. If you like the show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating for the podcast. And as always, you can follow all the podcast and Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening.